This is literally about consumers and that the only people who matter are consumers and all those other entities, the payers, the providers, are in business to serve consumers. And if you're not doing that, then you shouldn't exist. You should go away. This is Tectonic, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Capitalist with a decidedly social consciousness streak, Marcus Osborne, a leader of health transformation at Walmart, grew up in the South and planned on a political life. But experience in the White House made him realize that entrepreneurship more effectively matched his internal clock speed and that the best path to an improved health system was through the commercial world, particularly where you could parlay large platforms into market power. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David, what do you think? Is the government or the marketplace a more powerful path for a healthcare system change? I think that's a fascinating uh, question because there are so many guests who we've had who've sort of gone from one, gone gone to the other. There was some, um, I think, a couple of sessions ago, uh, uh, one of uh, Molly, right, was yeah, describing um, uh, the complexities of that. Um, you know, it always strikes me as a false choice. I think I'm so impressed by the role of the government in terms of, um, uh, you know, creating ideally a level playing field and hopefully mostly getting out of the way. Um, but in terms of setting up some guide rails and particularly in terms of um, uh, making sure that, um, you know, uh, you know for, there are some of the incentives are right, but of course I have an incredible belief in the ability of the mar- of the market to motivate folks to actually get stuff done. Well, it's definitely an interesting question, but we can ask our guest Marcus Osborne, who's head of health transformation at Walmart. Hey, Marcus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Why did you come to believe that the private sector was a more powerful engine for change than politics? Um, I don't know if it was that I believed it was more powerful. I think it was as powerful, and that. Uh, um, I think as you looked at our players, and you know, Walmart's sort of an obvious one, where who are the groups that are reaching people? I mean, it, my, my sense is if you actually want to drive change in healthcare, you've actually got to bring the ball game to the people, not expect the people to come to you, which has been sort of a traditional view of the healthcare sector. Um, I, I, I sort of, when I look around and say, is that the government? Well, I don't know that people sort of engage with government all that frequently. Outside but, of April 15th, anyway, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And even then, not sort of not desiring to engage in the government. But, you know, you look at groups like, you know, like Walmart, right, where in any given week, uh, you know, 150 million Americans, more than 150 million Americans will come into a Walmart store and spend on average about 40 minutes in that store, right? You think about how the the still, even though we sort of, uh, the, the over 100 million Americans who go to church every Sunday, you know, that you start to think about those being venues where if you're really trying to address healthcare needs, why don't you go to where the people are that you're trying to Engage, and so I started to think that the private sector, that there are players outside the government who have an ability to drive change and influence. Yeah, there was a recent panel that uh, at Harvard at Lisa was on, which I'm going to say again because Lisa likes that sentence. <laughs> there was a recent panel at Harvard that Lisa was on, um, featuring Troy and Brennan of uh, of CVS, who is talking, you know, uh, yep. who is talking about how many uh, American, very much to your point, about how many Americans live within some number of blocks of a CVS. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the idea of, of really meeting people where they live, which if I had to make a comment about what was the sort of the, the most important emerging theme of, of healthcare going forward, it, for even for severe conditions, it's the idea of meeting patients and meeting people where they are. And it seems like what you're saying is you have a unique opportunity to do that. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And I think yeah, and I think the you know that 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 too much, um, too much of the sort of 
systemic burden that's been put on consumers to basically have to do all the work to kind of figure out how to make a complex system simple to sort of get act, truly access it. So I think our new challenge is how do we actually go the other way? And I guess one of the reasons for optimism when you think about it, um, not to jump ahead, um, but, but at Walmart is when you think about um, – because uh, one, one of the guys who set this particular program up, I think, actually just lives, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, in our neighborhood. Um, the um, uh, the environmental uh, approach to the supply chain of doing things in a more environmentally conscious way um, is something that uh, Walmart was a leader in. They said we, we we're, we're demanding these new standards, and because of their incredible power, they are able to affect tremendous change and. It hasn't adversely affected the business, and it's certainly motivated a huge number of suppliers to up their game, as my youngest daughter would remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting, Marcus, this um, this point of view, because you, I know it's not where you started. The direction you started was, you know, like me in political science, heading, heading into politics or law. You were the only graduate in your uh, class uh, with a political science degree. Didn't go to law school. Instead, you went off to the Clinton White House with a, you know, a place where they clearly wanted to make healthcare change for the but, better. But first, how did you ask him about growing up in Kentucky and not leading with a bourbon question? Oh, what? yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know, how are those bourbon exactly. tariffs doing over there? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but seriously, Marcus, yeah. how did you, that's a pretty unusual path, you know, to go from, from college into the White House like that. I, uh, how, how did that feel? What was that like? What'd you work on? Well, I mean, so it was in, when I was there, I actually didn't work on healthcare. I was working on uh, primarily internet policy. So, what ended up becoming the sort of policies that have defined uh, the the internet, and it and it seems sort of funny to think about it now, given given the the sort of just how sort of pervasive um, the internet and e commerce and everything is in our lives. But um, you know, for for me, it was it was just a perfect example of. Let's let's be super clear. The, the federal government is a is a is a sort of difficult, slow moving animal. And I think purposely. I mean, part of it is the need to be deliberate and not need not to kind of move too quickly, lest you sort of you know you you wreak havoc. But um, what I, what I sort of saw was sort of an entity who was able to convene in a way that that was remarkable and and drive change. And so things like domain name registration, you know, creating an, a global standard for it, and even stuff that we're sort of debating today, like, um, uh, uh, you know, the, yeah, net neutrality and, and the, you know, initially sort of a, a limitation on no taxation um, on goods sold via the Internet, at least for some time frame. A lot of that was sort of, you know, was able, the only way that was able to kind of happen because it required both private and public sector, required countries around the globe to sort of agree was that you needed a platform like the White House to kind of drive that. And so in my mind, it was my really my first exposure being from Kentucky, never having sort of been, you know, seen sort of experienced anything like that. It was seeing the power of sort of platforms, um, but also recognizing within those platforms that the change that occurs is actually often through people who I would define as entrepreneurs. That it's individuals who who have a sort of a, a, a build mentality and a creation mentality and a desire to get things done and and sort of operate almost without without regard for the resources around them that they that their desire is they they sort of see around the corner they have a vision 
there's something they want to do and they go figure out how to make it happen. Um, and, and so it was my sort of first exposure, both to platforms, but also this kind of what I consider to be true entrepreneurship, which is the ability within platforms to drive change uh, and the change agents who do it. So interesting because I think most people would say that inside of large platforms, large organizations that have a big platform, entrepreneurship, that's where entrepreneurship goes to die. You know, it's very hard to innovate from within in these large organizations, but you seem to feel differently. Yeah, well, and here's, I, I, let's be clear, I think in large organizations, innovation can go to die there. I think that's why I actually would argue it's much easier to be the, the individual in the Starbucks um, by yourself, you know, creating a business plan on the back of a napkin and then going back into your garage and trying to, you know, build that business. I think that's actually much easier because even though you may be doing it with no resources, you know, you only have it, it's only you or your co-founder. Um, and so I think this mythology of the sort of, of the, of the entrepreneur as being the sort of startup, um, I think I actually would argue that's, that's a lot easier. That's, that's a much easier path. And I would also argue it's much less likely to drive any kind of true impact and change. That's such a fascinating question. I mean, my guess is that there's a lot of ways things can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah. you know, and I, I can imagine framing it instead of, oh, this is easier, that, you know, everyone has their own particular uh, version of hell, I imagine. And yeah, I think it's right. But I would also say that the ability, you know, within what I've sort of seen and what I've just, what I've been involved with myself is that I think it's an, or that within sort of big platforms, the recognition that these sort of, you know, be they a Walmart or a federal government or Google or whatever it might be, um, that there are kind of individuals who have that entrepreneurial streak who, even though it's it's difficult, they sort of find a way to get it done. That is such an, I think it's such an interesting question. How does, I mean, I'd be really interested in your thoughts of how does one achieve that level of innovation in a large company? Because um on the one hand, I mean, what you're sort of saying is that if someone's reaching a billion people, you know, sort of, a, it's it's a version of the like selling in China thing. Well, if you reach just a tiny percent of a huge market, here if you make an increment, you know, a tiny change in something that affects a huge number of people, the overall impact can be huge. Right. On the other hand, you know, my own experiences, you know, pre- previous lives, um, at you know, working um, operationally within a large pharma. Um, trying to get change. I mean, it's just every level of the bureaucracy. It's like, well, this is a reason not to work. And this is what I would call innovation dissipation, where people might, where people would not say we can't do it. They're like, oh, very interesting. Let's go, you know, and you just have, you just mired in bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And I agree there's a unique set of skills and timing probably for people who are able to get stuff done in a big company. What are, what's the skills to being an intrapreneur, which is kind yep. of what you're describing? Yeah. I would I would basically highlight. I mean, I think one one skill that is is um, I think required regardless of where that is just is is sort it's just pure grit, right? It's just that you, it's the sort of proverbial. I'm gonna I'm gonna mow my lawn. I don't care, and I'm gonna finish mowing my lawn. I don't care if it's pouring rain and screaming hail on me. I'm gonna get it sort of done. So I think I think it's a I think that one's sort of an obvious one. I think the 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 other that I sort of found is that um, I think you've got to be better as an entrepreneur, as you define it, at at sales and selling a vision. And 
um, that in it, what I would say is as I sort of think about the things that I, that I've been able to get done and I think about the things that were really important to me, every meeting, every conversation, every sort of hallway conversation, every bathroom conversation, every cafeteria conversation, every meeting I'm in was, a, was a sales deal was about trying to sell a vision to someone and make them sort of believe and that it, that every second of every day you were you were doing you were selling that vision and even when you found somebody who didn't was was skeptical you keep selling them you keep selling them you keep selling them and I think um, it's there's a sort of depth to that that's sort of required within corporate within sort of platforms or corporations that you have to you have to actually go one step further than you might normally. So who's the quintessential entrepreneur entrepreneur person out there these days in your view? Well, I, I, I shared with you a few. I mean, I, I think um, in, in my mind, um, the you know the sort of obvious one I think is 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 Jeff Bezos of Amazon, right? Who you know now admittedly he holds the bully pulpit position within that corporation, but his his ability to sort of convince his people that Amazon was something can be something much more than a seller of you know widgets online. Um, that it was sort of a platform that was going to be about data, that it was going to be about um, that it was going to be about you know connectivity into the home, um, that was going to be about content, that was going to be about membership. And the value of sort of members sort of and creating value that's that's much more than selling books and everything else. Um, I, I would actually say I, I, I shared I, I give him a lot of credit. I think people sort of talk about it a lot, but I've sort of internally been wildly impressed with Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart, and that you know if you look at the things he's done, you know one convincing the board and his executive leadership team and down the chain that. You know, in an environment where thousands of people have been cut out of the core retail business, but that at the same time, and that he's done things like, you know, sell uh, or, or you know, effectively get out. You know, we 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 you know sold our business to Sainsbury in the UK and you know merged it with Sainsbury in the UK and took a minority position. And we've done some other things where we sold a bunch of assets across the world that. But at the same time, we spent, you know, north of $20 billion acquiring e-commerce assets globally and investing in people and putting more and more people into, you know, and hiring more and more people. I think the, the, his ability to convince people that, that we needed to take that hard turn um, required a certain, I mean, it was very, it was very entrepreneurial. I mean, and that I, I think there are a lot of people who aren't convinced. They're like, why would you do that? You've got this core business in the U.S. alone that it's the, you have stores in the U.S. that are generating $350 billion a year and they're growing. Like, you know, just keep, keep, keep doing that, right? Like, that makes sense. And he's, and a lot of those people have been doing it for 25, 30 years. And, you know, so I, I, I look at people like that and I think, and, and I, another one I sort of, that I don't think gets a lot of credit is, is and I can never remember her name, unfortunately, which is not, not but the woman who's the CFO at, at uh, Alphabet. Oh, Ruth Porat. Yeah, and has really, yeah, and she has, re- I feel like, has really gotten them focused and on, they are focused on sort of, I think, 
progressive businesses beyond their sort of core, but how they sort of got, how she got them sort of focused around it and convinced them to, to take these much more directed paths, I think is, is another good example. So I have to look, look at your kind of entrepreneurial platforms and things you're doing now, and I look back at your yep. your history, and I see, you know, I know you were at the Clinton Foundation later on after the White House yep. and after uh, management consulting experience, but you worked on a couple of different projects. One was about, you know, low-priced drugs. One was about, you know, um, a very extensive clinical program. Those, you know, real precursors to things you've worked on lately. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Because that was really a start from scratch, you know, no resources, start from yeah. the ground, but with a platform thing. Yeah, well, I think that, the, you know, the, the first one was what you sort of described. Here you had an individual, Clinton himself, President Clinton himself was a platform, right? His, his ability to pick up a phone and call anybody in the world, you know, everybody would take his call, even if he wasn't president. Everybody would sort of take his call. So he himself sort of reflected a platform. The question is, what were you going to do with that platform to drive change. And so the, the, the first kind of area was to say, let's, let's focus on HIV and AIDS out, out of this foundation. And well, what do we want to focus on from an HIV and AIDS perspective? Well, why is it so expensive to treat people uh, who have HIV, who are, who are HIV positive? And you saw in places like South Africa, where the average cost of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of the total therapy for HIV was you know, well over a thousand dollars. In some in some markets, it was over. You know, in some developing markets, it was over three thousand dollars. You know, like well, they can't. No one can afford to spend twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars. If you can get the price down to a hundred bucks, you got something, right? Because now you can. You know, foreign governments and other groups could potentially fund it, but but everybody believed it wasn't possible. And so we just said, well, let's go figure it out. You know, and we. We sent a small. We, we were not a very big team at that point. We sent a small team to India. We sent a smaller team to China. And we said, we know how these products are made. We know the Indians have the have the have the scientific skills and the clinical skills, and they've already sort of they they could make these products, but they weren't doing a very good job at supply chain management. We knew the we knew in China that the, the sort of supply chain of the of the chemistry side was pretty significant, but it was. Out of out of whack, and so we just we just dug in, and we just said we're not we're not leaving these countries until we get what we need from these groups. And um, you know, the the net result was within about six to eight months, we got uh, were able to deliver a set of therapies that were pricing was was south of 150 bucks uh, per patient per year, and within pretty short period of time, it got well under 100. And you just it was just you had to kind of you had to go just do it. And I think part of the problem was the reason it hadn't ever occurred before is no one ever just said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not leaving until it happens. And, um, and that was, I think, you know, that was kind of, we use that same sort of ethos when we went into places like South Africa, when we were invited in by the, by the government to come in and say, help us build an HIV treatment program. Um, and, and doing the same thing that we're not leaving this country until, People start getting getting treated, and and um, have the solutions that you've helped implement there be have they been enduring? They, they have, yeah. You look at the sort of numbers. I mean, it's, they're probably not as you know, are a hundred percent of individuals in in South Africa who are HIV positive getting treated, or in Rwanda, or in Haiti, or you know, other countries. Um, um, uh, no, but you know, you you talk about many of those there are countries where it might have been under one percent, and now you're at sixty percent. 
Um, and so I think, yeah, so the, the short answer is yes. And the other thing is that the donors find those to be some of the most successful programs that they fund because they can actually look at the results. So, yeah. So, Marcus, um, I know at a certain point after the Clinton Foundation, you went off to business school and said that was a pretty formative experience for you because of what how, how it taught you to think in retrospect in part. Mm-hmm about some of the things you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was probably an, an odd person in that I, when I went to Harvard Business School, I actually went because I needed to go. Uh, I, I felt like there were probably a lot of people that were there that they seemed to know everything. Um, and I didn't. I, I had. Uh, it was more for finishing school for these other people? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was a beginning school for me. I mean, there was you know, what I'd found both in my management consulting days, but then I was in the Clinton Foundation, you know, on the tail end of my time at the foundation, um, we had all these donors uh, that were now going to help start funding treatment. And if you think about it, we were, you know, you might have the Irish government or the Japanese government or the Swiss government sort of, or the Swedish government giving money, and you're buying product in China, shipping it to India, you're buying more stuff in India, buying finished product in India and shipping it to South Africa. And you're, and oh, by the way, the Clinton Foundation is a U.S.-based group. So you think about all those currencies. So we were doing, uh, we had started to do these complex hedges because the reality is like you were worried about currency fluctuations, that if something fluctuated in a bad way, it could result in somebody, you not had enough money to buy the drugs that you wanted to buy to actually put people in treatment. And I realized I didn't even entirely understand what a hedge meant. Like I didn't, I was, I was, I was consulting the people um, on business strategy, and I was doing other, you know, doing doing these sort of financial transactions, and didn't even have a clue at what it meant, like the fundamentals. And so, um, so for me, it was it was exact. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was it was it did sort of uh, it was game changing in the sense of I, I I went back and I and and it was an opportunity to actually understand the fundamentals and understand how did these sort of as you think about finance and accounting. And approaches to marketing, even approaches to strategy. Um, what are sort of the fundamentals you need to actually, you know, and 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 truly understanding how things work? What what's what's the engine? If you look on, you know, don't just drive the car. Can you can you, you know, if I need to, can I rebuild the engine? Because that that actually matters. Um, and so for me, it was very much an opportunity to 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 do that to to get that level of learning. And what the the result has been, I think, what it sort of has empowered me to do is um, I can't be I, – I, I, I generated a level of confidence and understanding that you can't sort of push me over. That what I tended to find is often as I would sort of be working on things, the skepticism that comes up is actually not based on facts. It's based on, it's based on emotions or, or opinion without facts. But that if I, if I can sort of – use my sort of understanding of the fundamentals. Um, I can, I can sort of everything you throw at me, I can hit back. And then we're going to have a real conversation about, you know, about, you know, uh, th- then we can get down to kind of real conversation. So for me, it was, it, it was, it was critically important. And I, you know, for a lot of people, I'm not so, so certain, but for me, it was, I, I think I, I would actually argue probably, um, it may have been the defining moment, you know, or at least one of the top two or three in my life, that sort of decision. So interesting. Well, unlike most of your classmates who went off to finance, yeah. you went off to Bentonville and joined Walmart I after did. that. I did. Did you, did you see that as the emerging 
platformer of the future? I mean, did you know that was coming? Uh, no, uh, no, I, not not really. I think there's two things that, sir, I was looking at, um, and that they're sort of uh, that were important. One was I was looking for platforms. I was looking for it because I because I just had this kind of sense that platforms and what was really important to me, platform a big platform was going to be the the place. And I didn't know if Walmart was the right one, but I knew it. I, uh, but I knew of Walmart. You know, I'm from Kentucky. Um, and there are there are WalMarts everywhere in many of the communities. Could could you walk us through your experience there? Uh, how initially uh, I understand you were running the clinic business, and um, uh, but and then your, your responsibilities evolved. Could you sort of uh, walk us through how your views of healthcare changed during your ten during your over a decade at the uh, or in the organization? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you sort of the quick. I'll give you the kind of quick view of the things I was involved with. Because then I'll, then I'll walk you through how that has sort of influenced what, what that has has generated in terms of my view on the healthcare sector. I think I started with the clinics business and was helping lead a kind of transition into a, a, a away from what I would call as the minute clinic take care model that we still have today um, into one in which we were partnered with partnered with health systems. Uh, and then I. Um, did a couple other things. Uh, t- did a stint uh, actually in support of our own benefit plan, our health benefit plan, uh, to for our associates, um, and then and then came back and ran what was what we call the payer relations organization, which is all of our um, relationships with pharmacy benefit managers, health plan, the government, employer benefit groups, and the like. Um, and before I sort of took over health transformation, I guess what I would say is. Of, of the things that that have now massively kind of the, all those roles, what have what are what views have they influenced? I think one, if I go back to clinics, it's simply this: that um, that the AMA has it wrong. Um, that we need to be finding ways to make care more accessible. We seem to be overly concerned about. You know the the risks associated supposedly with you know harming people, but in fact a lot of that is a red herring, and that what we're really trying to do is is protect a, a set of profession professionals or profession a profession, and I saw that where you know uh, probably one of the real quickly one of the best stories I had was I visited one early on I visited one of these retail clinics we had operating in Mississippi. And this was a clinic that amongst all the clinics we had at that time, this one, we had, I think, six or seven different partners. Um, but amongst the seven partners, this was one of the partners clinics in Mississippi. And this, amongst all the clinics we had, was just rocking. I mean, unbelievable traffic. And I went in and saw the nurse practitioner, and I, and I asked her, I said, can you tell, like, why? Why are you seeing so many people? And she was like, oh, we just... You know, we just give good service. And I said, that can't be it. I mean, I've been to a bunch of these clinics, and all the nurse practitioners seem really kind. And 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 she was very hesitant to tell me. And she finally leaned in and she said, if you promise not to tell my company, um, I've changed the scope of services. And I'm now, uh, I'm now managing a lot of diabetics and their care. And we're not supposed to be, uh, but I am. And I told her, good for you, and if... If they give you a problem, here's my card, you called me. And what it sort of told me, it didn't matter if it was women's health services or chronic care support for people who are diabetic. And now we're even seeing sort of around behavioral health, the idea that somebody would come into a retail setting like a Walmart and want to have, you know, 
therapy with a with a from a therapist teleclinically, what you would heard is that's not appropriate. Well, what we're finding is people need access to those services, and so I think that was one. And probably the, the second, which is which is bigger and more fundamental, is as I was as I sort of transitioned in my career and was able to assess Walmart really through the lens of Walmart. What I came to figure out is so much of the dialogue is what I uh, is around this concept of balance interests. And what I mean by that is we, we, we claim the best solutions in healthcare are the ones that address the needs of the patient and the provider and the payer and the product, product producers. So pharma and device manufacturers. And at some point I woke up and I'm like, freaking healthcare is a, is a, is a retail business. It's, it's, why, like balance interests is bull. This is literally about consumers and that the only people who matter are consumers and all those other entities, the payers, the providers are in business to serve consumers. And if you're not doing that, then you shouldn't exist. You should go away and that we've got a wrong orientation. And so, and, and that's what I have to say. I don't actually think the healthcare system's failing. I think it's working perfectly for what it's designed to do. I think it just has the wrong design purpose that it, if, if we, if we were a hundred percent consumer focused, do you have a pragmatic suggestion for how to free healthcare from the shackles you're describing? Um, I mean, that would seem like an important consideration, like how to get there. A pragmatic one. I, I yeah, no, a, pra- a pragmatic. Here's what I would tell you. I, uh, I think, I don't know that it's pragmatic because pragmatic in my mind often means easy to execute. Um, and I don't know this one is. I think that one of the biggest problems we sort of look at today is that the, that the sort of interests, I don't want to call them special interests, because but all the interests have used their interest points, particularly at the state level, to create this absolutely atrocious patchwork of regulations that don't allow you to do, you know, you, what you're allowed to do in Florida, yeah, you can't do yeah. in Texas, what you're allowed to do in Kentucky, you can't do in Tennessee. And at some point, um, as much as we like to say healthcare is local, I believe healthcare policy is global and that we need a singular. We, I, I almost, I'm almost at the point that I actually don't think the state should be able to regulate the healthcare industry at all. I don't think they should. I, don't, I think we should do away with pharmacy boards and medical boards and just have a, have a, a because we need at least a single standard because it's that, it's that lack of sort of a national standard and the deferral of the states that, has has made it very difficult to scale successful solutions nationally. Well, we're going very far away from that. We're I'd going say, in the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah, in this I'm not sure right this healthcare uh, policies of the world unite is going to. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it, but no, it's uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's problematic. So as you look at what's going on out there with all of the change, um, some of which is being catalyzed by Walmart, who do you think the big healthcare companies will be in ten years? Will they be different than they are now? Will the list of the top five be different? Uh, you know. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, my, my, it, you, you all almost have to ask me on the day, um, like what kind of mood I'm in. <laughs> I, what I would say is when I, when I look at it, you know, I, I, all these kind of, there's these great little things that sort of pop up on Facebook. Like what are the, who are the 20 largest companies, you know, in 1940, you know, none of and like most of them don't exist. So my sense is my, my initial reaction is, um, I do. I do think it's going to be a very different list. I, you know, I, I, uh, I think there are groups coming in who um, bring a different set of sort of capabilities that are going to completely 
change how care is delivered. And I, I share this. I, I think as I look at the solutions that I think are going to address the challenges, um, in my mind, it's probably two things. It's who, who's going to address, better address access to care. And in my mind, the sort of future of access to care is not going to be sort of about physicians. It's going to be about, um, you know, whether you would call it care managers, community health workers, it's going to be sort of this, new, you know, this pervasive, a newer, more accessible, pervasive model that enables individuals to kind of help have help. Um, and so who's going to sort of execute that? Um, uh, you know, so I think that once I, and then I think the other is around, um, I think the other thing that could, that's going to potentially transform healthcare is, is around data and analytics and a new way to think about at a consumer level, using all this data that exists about you as an individual, using that data to better assess your health and to better, you know, potentially identify disease onset, uh, disease progression, to identify all the kind of, and then intervene faster. Uh, Marcus, one of the things when you talk about that, I think you mean something very yep. different than most people in the healthcare system. Because I think yes. when you talk about that, you're talking about retail data, you know, sort of behavioral yep. data. Like from Axiom, like stuff you get from a company like Axiom, right? No, 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 no. I'm actually, no, I actually don't think, I think their data is not that valuable. I think theirs is like demographic data. I'm talking about watching the things. What are the things that you actually purchase? What are the SKUs you buy? What are the things that you search for? What are the things that you like on Facebook? What are the things you tweet on Twitter? What are the movies you download and on Netflix? Like, I think all those unique behaviors, I think what you, what we're finding is how you behave and very small changes in that behavior are, are indicative potentially of onset of disease and disease progression. In other words, can I diag- could I diagnose diabetes and never have to go see a doctor? or do an A1C, I'll just sort of know it because your, your system um, is reacts to its own, you know, you change your behaviors based on how your system is operating and you may not even know it. Um, it's the, it's the old sort of, it was the, the earliest exa- or the example that was sort of public from a number of years ago was target when they got in trouble because they, they could through the, you know, what you buy. They knew you were pregnant before you did. They knew yeah. you were pregnant before <laughs> you were pregnant, right? Or, or Microsoft more recently, based on your search, what you're searching, they can identify individuals with pancreatic cancer and other kinds of cancer. I think you're going to find that. I think, so I, I look at that and say, okay, well, if we've got a new world order in which this, this behavioral data can identify disease earlier, and you've got people who have found completely new care models, and can engage people more, um, and you and and you know there are, and and then kind of the emergence of digital health solutions. Then explain to me again what what's the value of an HCA who sort of is really expensive centralized healthcare assets, or what's the value of a managed care organization when all the cares are being you know like what are you managing anymore? So it leads me to believe that. I think all of the, those models are sort of, I, I view them as being challenged. That is a very disruptive idea, by the way. I mean, I think we've, we, we, Lisa and I have talked, I know I've written exactly about this concept. I think it's fascinating, the idea of all of the personal and behavioral variables as, you know, and it really is almost the opposite of this sort of molecular reductionism that people talk about. And here you're describing actually how people act, how people behave, um, which sort of, that part of it sounds, I can imagine it sounds appealing. On the other hand, the idea of monitoring it 
um, super closely so that you can sort of get this detailed information that, that has like a little bit of creepiness to it that I yeah. think one has to navigate appropriately. Yeah, I, I'd agree 100%, but I think it's then, what I would argue is it's, it's the contract with the individual that you've got to create that builds the trust. And I think there's an argument to be said that, you know, I think if you're doing that without without my sort of agreement, then then there's a problem. But if there's a contract that says I'm we're in this one together and I'm doing this for you. And if you allow me to do it, then here are the benefits that will occur to you. Maybe it's, you know, maybe your insurance costs less. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, you know, just, maybe it's just out of the pure benefit of like, you're going to be more aware of your own health. Um, or that, or if you're a mom, the health of your kids or the health of your spouse or the health of your parents, right? Okay. Was there value in that? So I think there's, I think it's around the con, the, the, that kind of social contract that's going to have to be created. So Marcus, as we're wrapping up a big, yeah. big soccer day, I know you're a huge soccer fan uh, and player yourself. And, um, you know, watching that play out on the world stage, a really international endeavor, it, you know, somewhat at odds to what we're seeing in our own political world. I know that you believe the importance of the multicultural experience, but I'm wondering what you think about this whole concept of multicultural experience and sportsmanship as an example for business? Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, here's what I would say is that um, I, I, I think the benefit is, is fundamentally that we need that, and particularly healthcare. And I, 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 I um, we need, we need more thought. We need more diversity of thought, not less. And, um, uh, and admittedly, I am a, uh, I am a 43 year old six foot two white male Harvard educated, right? Like I, 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 but, but when I walk into a room and everybody that is in that room is, is white and male and in their forties and fifties, just like me, I sort of, I, I think for me, the sort of value is not so much to kind of pay it lip multicultural and not, and, and sort of driving diversity and inclusion is not about paying it lip service. Cause that's the nice thing to do. I think we got to do it because fundamentally if all the 40 and 50 year old white males had all the answers, the freaking system would be working better. Right. And that, um, and that, and that, that we've at least, and it's not. And so for me, it's like, I'd rather seek out other people who might have a different view, who might be able to give me a different answer because by God, the answers I'm getting right now aren't, aren't cutting it. Um, so I think that's the real benefit. I think that's the real benefit. I think we've got to be sort of, and in the U S I think particularly, we've got to be more open to ideas right. yeah. of, you know, saying, you know, the stuff that I see, for example, coming out of Israel, wildly impressed by, it. um, why aren't we sort of taking some of what they're doing from a policy perspective, from a business perspective, and doing it here? I mean, even in Haiti with community health workers and the work that Paul Farmer's doing. Oh, he's wonderful. Yes, yeah, it's working in freaking Haiti. Like, why? And, and it's working in the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. Why wouldn't it work for, you know, somebody in eastern Kentucky or somebody in Harlem, New York? Why? And, and I think we've got to be more open to that. Marcus, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Such a such a thoughtful yeah, mind. Same, same. Appreciate having you yeah. on the show today. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Good luck. Fantastic.
Today's guest, Marcus Osborne, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Wow. Um, what a great guy, huh? Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you start off, okay, here he is at, at, at Walmart, but his view is is as disruptive and as potentially disruptive as anyone we've spoken to yeah. when you think about it and what he's trying to push for and how he's trying to do that. And, you know, sometimes you have people who are sort of billed as innovators, quote, unquote, in large companies, and it's sort of like, you know, oh, for goodness sake, it's sort of like, uh, you know, here's like the innovation checkbox. And this felt the exact opposite. I mean, it really feels like he's both driving, driven to make changes and has a platform that um, seems like it's supporting him and that, and that you know, will really enable him to at least try to do some of what he's, uh, his well, ambition. I, think, I, I personally think Walmart is the, the, the most important healthcare company right now, the way they're, they're taking things on. And because they're thinking about going all the way into the home, you know, uh, deep into communities in ways that most are only dabbling. And I, I do think that, you know, Marcus and his colleagues are onto something quite powerful. I mean, I think the real challenge is what he was talking about at the end, where he was almost sort of describing a parallel system of sort of diagnosis and mm-hmm. sort of guidance. He wouldn't say treatment, guidance, where it's almost sort of like for parallel parenting. I don't parenting. think parallel. I think it was paramount. I mean, I think he's talking about it as in. As, well, as first, uh, you know what? When someone has a heart attack, they're not going to go to Walmart. Um, uh, you know, but I think that the idea of ha- essentially collecting and and sort of monitoring someone from a diagnostic perspective, from all of the variables in the sense that they could collect and sort of guiding their life, and a real challenge and real opportunity, of course, would be to figure out a way to unify that with some of the very legitimate strengths of the existing healthcare system, but without running into just sort of the territoriality that he was describing. Yeah. Well, anyways, he's a fascinating guy, and it's always good to talk to him. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Soonan at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful. We're very grateful for many things, but in particular to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. <laughs>